Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. The definition of sustainable investing should be simple. It should be built around climate, the most pressing sustainability issue of our time. Our goal is that anyone can understand it and that it makes sense for the long-term goal of retirement so we can start shifting those assets away from the industries they shouldn't be in and towards the industries that we need to see massive growth in. Hey, folks, if you're listening to this podcast, you clearly care about climate change, and it might bother you that your 401k is likely investing in fossil fuels. Many employers have yet to offer sustainable 401k plans, and it sends billions of dollars of capital into fossil fuels every year. Even ESG funds often invest in fossil fuels. Today's conversation is about making it easier for everyday investors to invest more sustainably. I'm joined by Zach Stein, founder of Carbon Collective, a startup offering green 401ks and other sustainable financial products, and by Shondine Cedar, an investor at Powerhouse Ventures who invested in Carbon Collective. We talk about Zach and Shondine's backgrounds, ESG investing and the need for more sustainable investment options, Carbon Collective's potential, their traction, and what else is needed to finance the kind of climate progress that we need. There's lots in this one that'll get you thinking. Enjoy. Zach and Shandine, welcome to Invested in Climate. So glad to have you both here today. So glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, we just discussed offline that we're all neighbors in the East Bay of the Bay Area. Do you two get to see each other once in a while or is this just a virtual friendship? We actually saw each other yesterday. Yeah, we hosted a happy hour at our office. So, and Zach, I feel like I see you around at different Bay Area events. It was mainly to conspire and prepare for the podcast. I can't believe you just confessed that you hosted a happy hour and I didn't get the invite. So next time. That's on Sean Dean. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. Next time, for sure. Next time. All right, good. Well, let's see. Let's get started by learning a bit about each of you. Zach, you're the founder of Carbon Collective. We'll have plenty of time to go deep into the work your company is doing. So let's first hear about you, your background, and how you came to start your company. Awesome. So grew up here in the Bay Area. I've known my co-founder since we were four years old. So we go way, way back. I've told the story in a few other podcasts. My earliest memory with James is we were in his backyard and the sprinklers came on and his mom said, absolutely do not run through the sprinklers. Little did you we did, know. of course. We were naked running through the sprinklers basically immediately. 
So skip all the way ahead, graduated from college in 2011, didn't really know what I was going to do, ended up getting pretty involved in the urban agriculture scene in Berkeley, which kind of led me into sustainability and food, which led me into tech in my first startup and a lot of stories there. But eventually, James and I founded Carbon Collective on Jan 1 of 2020, trying to see how could we build better tools for individuals to collectivize climate action. Great timing. I'm sure that year proceeded just as you expected. Nothing that big happened. Shandine, what about you? You're an investor at Powerhouse Ventures, and you have a really extensive experience in the climate space. Tell us a bit about your background and the work that you're doing at Powerhouse. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, hello, podcast people. My name is Shandine Cedar. I'm an associate here at Powerhouse Ventures. I'm primarily responsible for sourcing diligence and post-investment support activities at the fund. I'm most recently coming from GreenBiz Group in the Fortune 1000 kind of corporate sustainability world, media world, shout out GreenBiz Group, primarily working at the intersection of climate technology and business. I also wear many hats. So if there's one thing folks should know about me, it's that I'm originally from Arizona and the Navajo Nation. So things like climate justice issues, environmental wellness have been forefront for me ever since a young age. So I do try to embed equity and kind of just transition principles into the work that I'm doing, whatever that might be at the moment. Great. And for folks that aren't familiar with Just Transition Principles, we actually recorded a podcast recently with Marianne Gee from the Climate Justice Alliance, all focused on just transition and really, I think, a great conversation if you're interested in, in learning more. Shandine, if you don't mind, I'd love to learn more about Powerhouse. I worked with your founder, Emily, way back when before the firm was even called Powerhouse. And I don't think I've really kept track of all the great work that you're doing now. It's always great to run into people who knew us back in the days when we were FundCube. I don't even know if I'm saying it right, but it was a terrible net name. I'm really glad that we rebranded to Powerhouse. How do you spell that? I think it's like S-P-F-U-N-D. I actually don't know. I just know that it was FundCube. Anyways, so really fun that you kind of knew us back in the day. So yeah, for those that may not know, Powerhouse Ventures is a climate tech fund. We exclusively invest at the pre-seed and seed stage. So founders who are building software, digital solutions that decarbonize energy and mobility. And there is a distinction between Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures. So the organization that you were familiar with, and as you alluded to, Powerhouse, the firm has been around for a long time. They're kind of an OG in the climate tech space, been around for 10 years They started out as a climate tech accelerator. They are now a boutique consulting firm for large energy, corporate, and infrastructure companies in the startup and innovation space. So Paros Ventures, where I sit, is newer. We launched Fund2 in 2018 and are currently deploying out of Fund2. Actually, Carbon Collective was our very last investment out of Fund1, which is fun. We kind of benefit from all that Powerhouse has built in terms of network, brand, their climate tech startup database, all of that stuff, which has been great. Fantastic. And what about your own search for companies? Tell me about your investment thesis and what sorts of companies you're personally looking for. Our thesis revolves around a couple of foundational ideas. First is kind of around the sense of urgency. We are operating out of this decisive decade for climate, right? We are three years, more than three years into this decisive decade. So have less than seven years to kind of get our crap together and get out there. 
Second, as a climate tech industry, we know that we can get to about 90% clean power and about 80% emissions reduction with the technology that we have today. It just needs to be invested in and scaled. So for us, that really means that we need to get this already proven tech, de-risk tech, to scale globally and as quickly as possible. And we do this through software and fintech investments. So I think doing this gives us time to deploy those hard tech solutions that have a 10 to 30 year kind of commercialization horizon. We definitely need both hard tech and software. Shout out Clean Energy Ventures, TDK, all of our other friends, but we're hyper-focused on those highly scalable digital solutions at this stage in the fund. Thanks. Love the generosity of shouting out other venture players (laughs) in the space. So thank you, Shandine. Zach, let's turn back to you and hear a bit about Carbon Collective. I really appreciate how detailed your company's website is, full of educational materials, and also it offers a lot of transparency into the behind the scenes of your company, including your theory of change and your quote-unquote master plan. Let's start with the theory of change. From an impact lens, why is Carbon Collective needed? Fundamentally, we can't solve climate change unless we change how we invest. It's a problem that we have to build our way out of. And that is both for you and me and also much larger investments. So just to do the energy transition alone, the International Energy Agency estimates that we're going to need to be investing $5 trillion a year and stop investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure. We have enough. We need to let that industry naturally decline. Last year, it was about $1.7 trillion into clean energy and about $1.1 into fossil fuels. So we're still pretty far off of that. And we started Carbon Collective because when kind of going back to that Jan 1 origination story, no idea COVID was going to happen, we went down this pathway of we interviewed 120 people in and around our network trying to understand what climate actions they were taking and where they were getting stuck with the goal of not necessarily saying we're going to build a finance company, but saying, let's see what people are doing today. And if we could take actions that we're all doing and do them in unison, we could have more impact with those actions. It could also be a much richer emotional experience. And what we ended up finding was that our investments, a lot of people said, hey, I'm in this BlackRock ESG fund. I looked under the hood and I'm like, I don't get why these companies are in here. I don't get the theory of change. I don't get why it's more expensive. And it was just a lot of confusion. And that led us to kind of what Wall Street has offered as kind of the solution for sustainable investing, which is ESG, doesn't actually have, from a startup perspective, doesn't actually have product market fit. In fact, it's we have theories that it's actually a technology that's in the process of being unbundled. And so that led us to saying that we should have the definition of sustainable investing should be simple. It should be built around climate, the most pressing sustainability issue of our time. And so that led us to build our strategy, which is not perfect. No investing strategy is perfect, but is clear and simple. And as you said on our website, our goal is that anyone can understand it and that it makes sense for the long-term goal of retirement. So we can start shifting those assets away from the industries they shouldn't be in and towards the industries that we need to see massive growth in. Fantastic. Zach, central to your theory of change is a belief in divestment and an emphasis on divesting from fossil fuel companies. Is there evidence showing that divestment is working? It's a really good question. So let me start with the kind of the flip side of the argument, which is saying, like, regardless of how you feel about ExxonMobil, you need to own the shares in that company so that you can vote 
on them. We saw this with, if you're familiar with or your listeners are familiar with engine number one, they did this very famously in 2020, led this kind of major push and got two board members added to Exxon's board. We think that shareholder engagement is very important, but it is a limited resource that should be used very selectively. And the analogy I like to use is ExxonMobil is like a business with a line out the door and around the block right now. And it doesn't really make much sense to go to the guy behind the counter and say like, hey, you should really consider changing business models. (laughs) They're not going to listen. Instead, we should go to the people in the line and say, hey, you can get a lot better deal across the street and it's better for the planet. That's where we should be applying our pressure. So that's what adds to that divest, reinvest, pressure the rest model that we take of we don't think it both morally makes sense to hold these, but also financially. These are fundamentally industries that are being outcompeted. We might not see that in a year or two, but for someone like me, where I have a 30-year retirement time horizon, we absolutely will then. And so we don't think it makes sense to be invested in those type of long-term assets. Right. Well, as you said, ESG is a technology that you believe can be unbundled. And so I'm really curious, as you are breaking apart and focusing on sustainable investing, what's unique about your approach? What is Carbon Collective offering that really is fundamentally different than ESG? So the way that we like to talk about it, and ESG is a term, especially now that it's gotten picked up by the right, and it's the new critical race theory, so to speak. It's really confusing. What is it? Well, part of the problem is that nobody really agrees. And here's our take on it, is that ESG is a methodology of evaluating new types of risks in companies and portfolios. So diversification of risk is kind of the magic of investing. It is the magic of being able to create outsized returns. And ESG was initially invented by hedge funds who are saying, huh, there's these other types of risk that we aren't seeing on a balance sheet, so to speak, that we want to make sure that we're diversified against, like water risk or an energy price risk or a carbon tax risk that you could be ahead of. So that was the kind of instigation of ESG, but its innovation and why I kind of alluded to it being a technology was that it quantified these types of risks for the first time. Because prior to then, you had what was called SRI, socially responsible investing. And that was just kind of like exclusionary screens. So it'd be like no weapons, no fossil fuels, no nuclear. And ESG saying, oh, we can actually analyze and pick and choose and rank these players. But part of the problem was everyone got in the game. And so you have like 20 different ESG ranking systems that completely don't agree with each other. So you don't know who to trust. That's ESG. Sustainable investing to us is a separate category. It is saying that you are building an investment thesis around a secular theme. And secular in the world of finance just means kind of like not on a balance sheet, like outside of that. And the theme here to us is climate change. How could you accept and hold that climate change is here, it is present, it is going to get worse before it gets better, and it presents both great risk and great opportunity. If you build a comprehensible investment strategy around that theme, that to us is the definition of sustainable. And you'll note what's in there is not what I'm about to talk about next, which is impact investing. And it's really important to separate that out. Because in sustainable investing, I can make that same argument of you're doing this just to try and make more money because of your belief around how climate change is not being accurately priced in. And then for impact investing, that takes the question of saying, in making a change in my portfolio, how will I make a tangible difference on the real world? 
that's a really important question, but it is somewhat separated from the goal of returns and investing. At Carbon Collective, we don't consider ourselves ESG. We don't touch a lot of those factors. We don't use a rating system. We think it's too complicated and it's not what people want. So we sit at the intersection of sustainable and impact. Zach, something that I saw on your website that I found really interesting was a benchmark that compared fossil fuel holdings across different funds. Tell us about that comparison and what it reveals for you. Yeah. So I want to give a shout out. There's an amazing free resource from a great nonprofit that does shareholder activism called As You Sow, also here in the East Bay with us. They have a great resource called fossilfreefunds.org, where you can go and enter the ticker of any mutual fund or ETF to see if it has fossil fuel holdings in it. And they go some levels deeper, like they'll flag if Berkshire Hathaway is in it, which is not a fossil fuel company in its own right, but owns multiple fossil fuel companies within it. That's a really important thing to flag and see because there's a big disconnect often. Like there are certain portfolios from pretty prominent investment firms that are out there that are like labeled climate impact. And when you actually dig in, they have more exposure to fossil fuel companies than they do to climate solutions companies. And to us, that doesn't fit the science whatsoever. And so you're kind of asking people to believe one thing but not having it actually match. Shandine, let's turn to you. Tell us about the business potential you see in Carbon Collective and why you invested in Zach's company. So just thinking about it, we, we did the deal about we're over a year at this point, and it was actually a really interesting deal to work through. And we got the deal across the line due to three very clear pressure points. And actually, Zach, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but those areas are in terms of market size and overall opportunity, sustainable investing as an asset class has rapidly grown into this $35 trillion industry. How that's being defined is a little bit loose, but market size and overall opportunity is there. Related to this, just changing consumer demographics and demand trends are significant tailwinds. So According to a Morgan Stanley report that is now a little bit dated, close to 99% of millennials and 79% of all other individual investors express interest in climate-themed investments. Millennials are now the largest generational group in the U.S., projected to hold 25% of wealth in 2030. So some interesting dynamics there. Also really interested to see how Gen Z is going to shake things up. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. And then finally here, just the customer pain points addressed by Carbon Collective are clear. So what Zach was saying earlier about while demand is growing here, actual access to robust sustainable investment products just remains a real challenge. Like a few years ago, as a climate person, like I could not get access or put my money into something I felt 100% confident in. And Zach talked a little bit about this as well. Investors are often shocked to find that their portfolios that are marketed as ESG or fossil fuel free or even clean energy still include oil and gas companies or have little exposure to solar or wind companies. This is just irksome for climate people. And I hear this all the time from people who are climate people at climate jobs who kind of realize that their retirement contributions to their employer's 401k platform often includes oil and gas, and there's nothing really that they can do about it, or they just like don't contribute. So this is kind of all translates into why we are excited about Carbon Collective. Saw this like pent up frustration with greenwash ESG labeled products, pent up customer demand, and to this inability of like established wealth management platforms not being able to provide truly green products. 
So we saw Carbon Collective as this kind of first of its kind home for sustainable investors who wanted to have that like 100% confidence in where their money is going. It's being leveraged in a great way and also to generating comparable, if not better, rates of return. Thank you, Shandine. I love that Zach is only now finding out why you invested in his company by virtue of our podcast. So I guess this was breaking news. Zach, did that all resonate? Any surprises for you? Or is that how you see the opportunity as well? All resonates. I'm very flattered. It's always great to hear the words behind the action of that type of support. And obviously, fundamentally agree. The great wealth transfer is upon us. And fundamentally, I think what we are trying to build a carbon collective, and Jason, this is something that you alluded to, is trust. There's a huge lack of trust. There's been so much greenwashing out there that it makes it really hard as someone who's looking earnestly to say, like, who can I trust in this space? One of the questions we get a lot is like, okay, but like, why can't Vanguard just do this? And that ultimately comes back to, I think, what Shandine was alluding to, is that Vanguard and BlackRock and Fidelity, they're serving every stakeholder that's out there. Some of them have tried to make a little bit closer of a climate commitment, and they got hammered for it. It's as a company and say, like, I can just put something, I don't want to look under the hood at every single thing. Can I just have some place where I know that someone's going through and going through the hard parts of this? It's not necessarily, it's not black and white. A lot of the areas are gray. And how can you go in and create clear, definable rules and make it public of how you did it that someone else could come in and follow for it? That's kind of our goal. And that's what we've seen to be the most successful way that we can rebuild trust in a space that has really lacked it. Zach, I think it's a good moment to bring in your master plan that I mentioned is laid out on your website. I believe there's four steps to that plan. Tell us about the plan and how it's going. Part of the problem, as we talked about at the beginning, is how do you get assets to be invested in building solutions? How can you do that as an individual? How can I do that in a way that makes sense and, and is, a sound, is a sound investment for the long-term goal of retirement? So at Carbon Collective, our goal is saying, all right, how do we build portfolios that make sense? They're clearly explainable. The goal I always like to say is I want an intelligent eight-year-old to be able to understand how our portfolios are built, and better yet, be able to go in and double check, and did they do what they said. So start there, then build distribution for that. So we started with a platform for individuals. So people like if you have an IRA or brokerage account, you can come in and invest with us through that. You can choose. We don't throw a menu of options at you. There's just a few kind of portfolio types that you can select from. So we really try to hold your hand through that. And then build our own series of funds so that way we can be in con full control of those assets, we can be in control of those votes, and then we could use those votes to start to apply increasing pressure. So right now, where we're at is we have kind of two main distribution strategies for our portfolios. We have that individual platform, and then we have our 401k platform. And what we ended up finding, and this is, I think, true for any listener that has gone down a B2C fintech route, it's hard. <laughs> and it's expensive. And we kept finding when we start launch that individual platform, we're getting people, we're still getting a lot of people onto it. But they kept saying, like, I work at this climate tech startup, or I work at this sustainable nonprofit. And our 401k forces our whole team to invest in a way that's counter to our mission. Can you help? And that's where we've seen things really start to take off. We just signed our 81st company for our 401k program. We're in talks with a lot of really cool ones. We're getting bigger names. 
within this space. And it's really, really exciting for us. And that's what we've seen is going to be our pathway to be able to scale sustainable investing and continue to launch these future funds. What we are excited to add on to this and what is going to be the next step is going to be shareholder engagement. Right now, we vote in coalition with groups, so we're kind of pooling our shares together to do that, groups like As You So, but we aren't yet at a growth stage where we can start leading in parades ourselves. Our hope is that, and this is kind of the next step in the master plan, is that in 2024, or at least by 2025, we are able to use part of the fees that we generate to say, okay, there are additional climate actions that are necessary for this decade that make business sense that we are going to work and launch targeted, directed campaigns to the companies where we can have the most impact from doing that. And we're going to use our collective shares and the collective fees that we generate in order to put that money behind it. I think the ultimate goal for Carbon Collective is when we can actually spend no money on marketing and we can actually direct all those dollars into shareholder engagement work because the wins that we get from that generate positive press, which allow our collective to grow. So we can continue just ex- have an upward cycle of the power that we're able to generate from that. Right. You're painting a picture of a virtual cycle, a nice flywheel here of individual engagement, which leads you to meet the 401k managers at their employers, which allows you to have a larger investment footprint, be able to influence companies. Also, ETFs is part of the plan, donor advised funds. There's a lot there in the plan. And I'm really curious about getting to know like what's critical for your success. And curious if you have a perspective and Shandine would love to bring you into as well. Can I have Shandine answer first? Yeah. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot. <laughs> we already talked about the trust component. I think that's super huge in terms of a short-term growth plan. So Zach and I talked yesterday when we were at the happy hour, like it's about how do you survive this like in-between period of like the medium and long-term. I think trust and like word of mouth, people like me, like my peers who are really dedicated to platforms like this, getting out there, waving the flag, getting that AUM, getting that reputation built to where you can actually like start really snowballing. So I think that's just super key, at least in the short term. I love the educational content and component there. I think like I'm an investor, I should probably know more about this stuff and poking around in terms of my own like personal admin. Like there's a lot of questions that I have. And I think that's super important because there's a lot of people out there that would transfer their accounts over in a heartbeat, but they don't know how to, they don't know why they should. Having that financial literacy and like, giving folks a tool to do something I think is really important. So I think that's a key element here in terms of starting the conversation. Yeah. And then just like longer term vision, like I just, (laughs) I just want the company to just think big because this is a big industry. It's often toxic. It's often like things that I don't want to be involved in. So just maintaining that larger vision to disrupt wealth management as an industry is really exciting. And I just think longer term vision, like North Star of providing a space for all investors. Zach, I think that actually begs the question, how have your returns been so far? And what has it meant for growing your client base? Yeah, I think that was really well said. I think the only thing that I would add to it is, or maybe elaborating on one part that you talked about and goes back to that trust piece is that there will come a point where Carbon Collective will need to cross the chasm from the way that the climate community invests to that next rung out. The people who are like, I am concerned about this. I know about this, but is this the smart thing to do? I think that that's going to be a combination of A, 
really having the trust of the climate community behind us. We work with nonprofits that are trying to get like big tech companies to add sustainable options to their 401k. And we need as a community to be able to say, do as I say, because of what I do, not do as I say, not as I do, (laughs) when it comes to that type of investing. And I think especially having that unified voice of not just that this is the right thing to do, and this is what is needed for the climate, but in many ways, what I think is so missing from the conversations that are had today around sustainable investing, like I bet when I say the term sustainable investing, either to you or your listeners, your gut has a reaction of saying, well, I get worse returns. Like that is the narrative that is still out there. And fossil fuels still have the narrative of saying, even if I hate them, it's necessary for returns. And that just hasn't been true. And very much as the transition, as the S-curve of adoption of things like EVs and these other things pick up, it's very much not going to continue to be true over the long time horizon. And the more that that message can get out, that that's the smarter way to invest, it's a more responsible way to invest, that's when we will really start seeing the type of movement that we need. So it begs the question... How have returns been so far for your customers and how's it reflected in the growth, presumably, of of your client base? We launched in a very interesting time. We launched the individual investor platform like right before Biden was elected. So there was like a massive boom kind of from that election and then from the Georgia runoff and things like that. But then if for you or any of your listeners, if you follow the stock market closely, you'll know that energy was the best performing sector by far, especially in 2022. This was also in a year in 2022 where everything was down. I actually had a newsletter on this a few months back that if you combine the cumulative returns of the US stock market and the US bond market, 2022 was the worst performing year since 1931. That's bad. That's why a lot of people looked at their 401k balances and were like, what, this is 20% lower? So that has kind of led us to we have slightly underperformed because of energy's outperformance because we don't hold it by this point in our portfolios we're okay with that we have not lost many people we've had about i think 0.2 percent of our individual members churn performance has never been the issue of it and this again goes to part of that education of like the most important question in investing is not what or who or why it's when. When do you need this money? And if you need it in the next year, you probably should keep it in a savings account. But if you need it in 30 years, that's a really different time horizon. And so paying attention to the near turn up and downs, of, it can be emotionally painful to see like, oh, there was underperformance here. But it's the long term trends. And we work really hard to help our clients keep their eye on the ball here. Zach, looking forward to the next 12 to 18 months. What are you hoping to accomplish? Our big focus right now is on our 401k program. We are putting a lot of resources behind scaling it and just getting more clients. It's a really good way for us to be able to get more AUM under our belt. It's a really great way for us to network with other mission-aligned companies and frankly provide a really good service. I was just on a call today with a client of ours who gave the person on our team who's the HR rep, like that's his job, that's who he helps. She gave him like the nicest compliment, (laughs) completely out of the blue there. I think it's part of the belief of kind of what the Tesla model showed, whatever we think about Elon, of how do you scale a climate solution, is you have to offer something that's just better, that happens to also be greener. 
And so that's very much what we're trying to do in the 401k space. So right now we're at around 80 companies that we work with and nonprofits. And our goal is to get that number within 18 months from now to something more like 200. Especially with the momentum behind corporate sustainability commitments, one would think that there's a lot of interest in sustainable 401k plans. But I know there's also been a lot of friction in the market with companies concerned about the perception of more risks with sustainable 401ks, and not to mention just the process of adding another plan option and just the bureaucracy of that. So tell us about the friction that you're noticing and what you think needs to change to accelerate that sort of adoption. This goes exactly back to the do as I say, not as I do element of in the 401k space. And again, this is being somewhat politicized. It's the new critical race theory in the anti-ESG push, but is saying that the Trump ruling under this was that a 401k fiduciary is only allowed to look at quote unquote pecuniary aspects of an investment. And the word pecuniary, I had to look it up. It means related to money. And what they're really going for is is what's going on on a balance sheet with that. For us in the climate community and to continue to push because, you know, our retirement options, you should have the option to align your retirement with a climate stable world, especially if you're a younger person like me or younger. The headwinds that we're facing is pretty significant at the big corporate level. You're talking about major, major companies. It's just a big jump and we're need to keep applying that pressure, but it's unlikely that we're going to see movement, my guess is, for a couple of years, maybe two to three years there. But where we are going to see movement is on the small and medium players, especially those players that are focused on climate and facing it every day. Because if you're managing a 401k plan, you have the most paternalistic financial relationship that exists under US law. As a fiduciary, you are only allowed to provide options that make sense for the long-term goal of retirement. And so if you are a climate-focused company that is facing that every single day, the specter of it, the risks and the opportunity of it, it makes a lot more sense to say, yeah, of course, we're going to include these types of options. And one of the things that we want to see a lot more of is people like Carbon Collective and beyond taking the pecuniary debate right head on. Of not saying, again, this is the right thing to do, but saying to be a better fiduciary, you want to include these options. I have an op-ed that's going to be coming out this week with a group called Impact Alpha, who's also a client of ours. And they asked me, they said, Zach, can you create the best argument you can for why sustainable should be a default option in a 401k? And it led to some really interesting places. And the logic that I ended up getting to is what is currently kind of seen as collectively the safest fiduciary option are strategies that are built around passive investing. If you haven't heard of that, it's a strategy that just tracks the overall stock and bond market. It's not making any decisions outside of that. And historically, that's been a really smart way to invest. This is kind of like where Vanguard and all of that got its start. But the problem with passive investing is that it's fundamentally a passive approach. You are just following the overall market. And historically, the overall market had a combination of investors with different timelines in it. They had short-term investors who had a goal of trying to create an outsized return, say, in the next one to two years as a part of their job, buying and selling and things like that. And then you had long-term investors who were saying, I work for an endowment, I work for a pension fund, I work for a retirement plan, where we have a decades-long time horizon. I'm trying to produce outsized returns over the next decade. 
And whatever's happening to interest rates or this over here, I'm not going to let that ruffle me. The problem that we've seen is that that second type of investors, the long-term investors, they're the ones who are switching to passive. In the year 2000, 12% of US equity funds, so ETFs and mutual funds, were passively invested. In 2021, it's over 50%. That is a huge shift in assets. And what that means is that the megaphone of sending price signals that long-term investors were doing, the ones who could account for risks like climate change or opportunities like that, has gotten a lot smaller because they are saying, we're just going to be followers in this parade. We're not going to lead anymore and set that. And so what that means is that we are starting to have this conflict when we look at passive investing, especially when it comes to retirement. Where for you as a fiduciary, you're saying, okay, this is the smartest way to invest for the long-term goal of retirement, but it's a strategy that is increasingly being priced by people that are only looking a year or two ahead. They're not looking further than that. So we have a long-term investment strategy that is being dictated by short-term investors, and that makes less and less sense. And those are the type of arguments that we need to be having and saying that as a fiduciary, to be a better fiduciary, to take that paternalistic relationship we need to take a step back and make sure that we're matching long-term investment goals with long-term investment strategies. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Zach. And we will make sure to include a link to your op-ed in the show notes. Shandine, let's bring you back in here. We've talked a lot about the potential for everyday investors to accelerate climate progress. Aside from the work that Zach and team are doing, what else do you think needs to happen? And what other kinds of companies are you looking for in this area? Maybe in, in the finance sector generally, I'd say we're eager to connect with companies that are enabling big climate data sets into financial decision-making workflows. So we invested in a company called Assess Global out of the UK doing just that, ingesting and making sense of climate risk data for large investors and insurance providers. So kind of that world for better decision-making. Actually, our team today was talking about this space in the built environment. So we'd love to see more innovative financing strategies that unlock things like small and medium-sized CNI building retrofits, the use of climate energy data for better risk-adjusted home improvement loans and other financial products, stuff like that. I think actually really interested, like if anyone's listening and are starting a company in that space, definitely reach out. So I think that's that's an interest area for us that's kind of top of mind. I think generally what I don't really want to see or don't we kind of have a maybe an antithesis against is still just very leery about like just kind of high level banking platform. So just like credit cards with campaigns that promise like tree planting or like carbon offsets or stuff like that, that are just like very climate light lift, but also light climate impact. I think we're still a little bit leery of at this point. Thank you so much, Shandine. Zach, we'll leave you with the final words here. Beyond the work that you're doing, what else do you think needs to happen to accelerate climate action? The number one thing is narrative. Right now, again, in public markets and in investing in general, sustainable investing is still seen as somewhat of a charitable act. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because it keeps more people on the sidelines. And so it keeps them from entering it, which keeps prices from rising, which keeps those companies from being able to get access to the levels of capital that they need to grow. I think this goes broadly to a criticism I have of kind of our climate communication in general. And I think that you could boil down climate change to a singular problem. And it's a problem of storytelling. We're not telling the right stories to the right people. 
And so much of what is missing is specifically on the solution space. I think that if you pulled, like, I think it's something like 50 to 20% of Americans consider themselves at least somewhat progressive. I think if you pulled that group of people, which is big, it's a big group of people, there's no climate deniers in that, and asked, like, what is it going to take to actually solve climate change? I don't think you'd have very high education rates and actual knowledge. I think you'd probably hear a lot of things of like, well, less plastics and things like that. We're not going to be able to build the climate-stable world that we all want to live in until enough of us can imagine it, that we can taste it and smell it and go for it. So if I wasn't doing Carbon Collective or if I was like very rich, it was like, what could you donate to that you think you'd have a lot of climate impact for? We should have amazing climate solution-focused children's books. There's just like a day in the life of like a New York City kindergartner going to school in a world that just happens to not be emitting carbon. That'd be really amazing. And how do we normalize that and build that and unlock that type of creativity? That's the type of storytelling we need. We try to do that kind of narrowly within the finance space. But I think my hope is that we're participating in a broader movement around that to really open our eyes to the fact that we're just building a better world fundamentally and also solving climate change. Great note to end. Thank you for helping us imagine a different future. Zach, Shandine, thank you so much for your time and for all the great work that you're doing. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.